0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we'll cover a topic suggested by a listener, the brief history of opening the chest to try to revive a failing heart. While CPR has replaced this approach to resuscitation, the story is a fascinating one. So let's get cracking in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Resuscitative thoracotomy, trauma thoracotomy, emergency department thoracotomy, cracking the chest... Call it what you will. This is a dramatic surgical intervention done as an emergency to try to save a life. Today we associate it with trauma such as stabs or gunshot wounds, but its history actually dates back to early attempts to resuscitate patients with cardiac arrest, or a heart that has stopped beating. The first to describe the idea of opening the chest and putting a hand on the heart to try to restart it, called open cardiac massage, was Moritz Schiff in 1874. Schiff was a pioneer of modern experimental physiology. Born on January 28 of 1823 to a prosperous Jewish merchant family in Frankfurt, Germany, he first worked as a director of ornithology at the schenken Institute of Natural History. As a young man in 1848, Schiff was swept up by the liberal movement and joined the Baden Army as a physician in a failed attempt to liberalize Germany during the German Revolution of 1848. Barely avoiding execution for his role, Schiff returned to work at the Institute, where he did groundbreaking studies that were so advanced, their significance were not fully understood for decades. For example, in 1856, he showed that animals of various species could not survive after the removal of the thyroid gland, but this work went unnoticed for three decades. However, opportunities in Germany were limited due to his involvement in the liberal movement, and so he went to Italy, where he ran the Institute of Advanced Studies in Florence. While working there, Schiff openly declared his attitude about vivisection, which is the dissection of living animals, in a popular journal saying that the use of animals was permissible only when the research was done on a whole animal and it should be rendered painless with general anesthesia. A British anti-vivisection activist, Francis P. Cobb, started a vicious crusade against him, which took a dark anti-Semitic tone. This eventually led to legal action, so Schiff fled to Geneva, Switzerland, which became an attractive center for learning for many ethnicities and for female students denied opportunities in other countries. While in Geneva, Schiff returned to work on the thyroid, partly at the request of Dr. Theodore Coker, see episode 28, the famous Swiss surgeon who operated on thyroids, and showed that a thyroid paste could at least temporarily reverse effects of thyroidectomy, leading the way to thyroid replacement therapy. Okay, so let's get to his work on open chest cardiac massage. Schiff, along with Dr. G. Haik, was comparing the effects of ether and chloroform, two different methods of providing anesthesia in the late 19th century. They published an article in The Practitioner in 1874 in which Haig described how Schiff practiced open-heart cardiac massage after cessation of heart function while using chloroform on experimental animals. Schiff is also credited with coining the term artificial circulation. And speaking of credit, Haig initially tried to claim these findings as his own until Schiff challenged him. This idea came up again in the medical literature in 1906 in a paper by Green published in The Lancet called heart massage as a means of restoration in cases of apparent sudden death with a synopsis of 40 cases. In this article, Green described the technique used by Schiff, Quote, the heart is in a vital state favorable to its renewed action when paralyzed by the influence of chloroform on the vasomotor nerves is demonstrated by Professor Schiff's practice of artificial circulation. He lays open the thoracic cavity and compressing the passive heart with his fingers imitates in it the periodic movements of the organ. The circulation is restored, the nerves of the heart recover their force, and the organ finally resumes its spontaneous action. Before long, signs of returning sensibility become apparent, the reflex action of the eyelid return, and the animal is now capable of being brought back to the cerebral consciousness." So this theoretical and experimental model is all well and good, but when did it actually get put into use on real patients? Well, amazingly, the first attempt of open cardiac massage was attributed to German surgeon Paul Niehans in 1880. Dennis Zizas assisted in this operation and described it in 1903. Quote, a 40-year-old man was operated for a goiter. Before the start of the operation, cardiac arrest. After unsuccessful attempts with artificial respiration, a resection of the ribs was carried out and the heart exposed. The heart indeed became firmer after massage, fibrillated. Normal contractions, though, no longer occurred. End quote. So this attempt, maybe not surprisingly, was not successful. The next recorded attempt occurred a couple of decades later, in 1898, by French surgeon Theodore Tuffier. Quick side notes about Tuffier: His main area of research was in cardiovascular surgery. He worked alongside Alexis Carrel, see episode 20, carried out one of the first successful surgical interventions for an aortic aneurysm, performed one of the first dilations of aortic stenosis. And worked on the first vascular prosthesis. We remember his name today with the Tuffier's line, which is an imaginary line connecting the iliac crests on the back of a patient, used as a landmark for the space between the L3 and L4 vertebrae. This is used to help guide spinal anesthesia and lumbar punctures. Okay, so on June 15, 1898, Tuffier was called to see a 24-year-old patient for acute appendicitis. On the fifth post-operative day, while Tuffier was visiting the ward, The patient had what was described as a syncopal attack. When he arrived at the bedside, Tufier found that the patient's heart was not beating. He decided to do open cardiac massage, thinking that the patient had a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot blocking the arteries to the lungs, and it was successful initially, with the patient returning to spontaneous circulation. Unfortunately, this success was short-lived as the patient died following a second arrest. Here's Tufier's description of the events. Quote, It was hard for us to let die of mechanical accident a young man of whom all the rest of the organ systems appeared normal, while we may have had a means, for which it is true we had only experimental approval to bring him back to life. My hesitation was of short duration. I rapidly made an incision in the left, third intercostal space, and, taking off the pericardium with the index finger, I exercised rhythmic compressions of the ventricular region for one or two minutes. The heart undulated at first irregularly, then truly contracted. The pulses returned, the patient took some deep inspiration, his eyes opened wide, his pupils contracted. End quote. Of course, the idea of operating on a heart, even in an emergency, was considered verboten. In the words of the famous Theodore Billroth, see episode 39, quote, the surgeon who should attempt to suture a wound of the heart would lose the respect of his colleagues. End quote. In the early 19th century, the prescribed treatment for cardiac wounds was absolute quiet the application of leeches, venesection, which is opening the veins to bleed the patient, and the passage of a catheter or a sound into the wound for the evacuation of fluid from the pericardial cavity. Here was the state of surgical opinion on cardiac surgery at the dawn of the 20th century, according to Stephen Paget, in a chapter on Wounds of the Heart, in the text The Surgery of the Chest, written in 1896. Quote, Surgery of the heart has probably reached the limits set by nature to all surgery, No new method and no new discovery can overcome the natural difficulties that attend a wound of the heart. Now, for those of you whose ears pricked up at the name of Paget, you are not mistaken. While Stephen Paget was an English surgeon, himself famous for his seed and soil theory of metastases, which is the idea that cancer cells exhibit preferences when metastasizing to organs, his father was the even more famous Sir James Paget. Paget's disease of bone, Paget's disease of nipple, and extra memory Paget's disease are all named after him, among other things. All right, so in 1896, when Stephen Paget was boldly stating that surgery of the heart could go no further, the very first successful repair of a cardiac injury, in this case a stab wound, was performed by Ludwig Wren, a landmark event in the history of cardiac surgery. First, let's meet the surgeon. Ludwig Wren was a German surgeon born on April 13, 1849, in the village of Allendorf, After training in medicine at the University of Marburg, he started practice as a general practitioner, and as was common in those days, moved on to practice surgery, eventually becoming surgical director of the Frankfurt State Hospital. And for the urologist listening, as well as anybody else interested in public health, Wren reported cases of bladder cancer with workers in the local aniline dye factories, as well as people living downriver. The connection between the dyes and bladder cancer would not be well established until the 1950s. And now, the famous event. On September 9th, 1896, Wren was called to attend a dying patient with a suspected stab wound of the heart. Wilhelm Justice, a 22 year old gardener who, interestingly enough, had been discharged from the military because of an irregular heartbeat, sustained a knife wound to the left chest uh... through the fourth intercostal space, for those of you who may be wondering during a walk and fell to the ground unconscious. A passerby found him hours later and took him to the hospital where he was watched for two days when he took a turn for the worse. It was realized that Wilhelm had an expanding hemopericardium, meaning there was blood accumulating around his heart and growing in size. The decision was made to operate. Here is Wren's description of the event. Quote, In the desperate case of a stab wound of the right ventricle, I was forced to operate. There was no other option open to me, with the patient lying before me bleeding to death. After a perusal of the following case history, the surgeon will be able to place himself in my position. Though one would have liked to have had time to carefully consider the problem, it demanded an immediate solution, End quote. A description of Wren's operation can be found in detail, but the basic idea was that he opened up the pericardium, which is the sac that holds the heart, and sewed up a laceration or cut in the right ventricle with silk sutures during the diastole phase of beads, meaning the relaxed phase of the heartbeat. Wren reported his operation in the German archives of surgery and in England in the Lancet in a paper called, The Successful Treatment of a Wound of the Heart. Six months later, in front of the German Society of Surgery, Wren reported the procedure and outcome. Quote, I am in the fortunate position to be able to tell you that the patient returned to good health. He occupies himself with light work, as I have not yet permitted him physical exertion. The patient has every prospect of remaining well, end quote. Ren concluded by saying, quote, gentlemen, The feasibility of cardiography, that's his word, not mine, no longer remains in doubt. I need not fear any objections as to its propriety. The operation not only was life-saving, but prevented the subsequent development of constrictive pericarditis. I trust that this case will not remain a curiosity, but rather that the field of cardiac surgery will be further investigated. Let me speak once more of my conviction that by means of the cardiography, many lives can be saved that were previously counted as lost." This episode reversed the prevailing belief in the inviolability of the heart, marking the beginning of cardiac surgery. However, as one astute Twitter follower informed me, this was not the first operation on the heart from a technical point of view. So let me explain. Norwegian surgeon Axel Hermansen Kapelin, in fact, was the first to dare to put a stitch in a human heart, which he did on September 4th of 1895, a full year before Wren. This occurred at the Hospitalet in Christiania, today known as Oslo. Again, it was a stab wound, this time in a 24-year-old male. When Kaplan opened the chest, he found an injury to a coronary artery on the left ventricle, as well as a small laceration of the left ventricle, both of which were closed with catgut suture. Initially recovering well, the young man took a turn for the worse and died on the third day post-op. So, Wren may have not been the first, but he was the first to be successful. Regardless these events changed the thinking around the idea of operating on the heart. The following year, 1898, the Italian surgeon Antonio Perazzani in Rome performed the second recorded successful suture of a stab wound to the heart. And the next major event in cardiac surgery was not far off. In fact, it was just 3 years away and brings us back from our wanderings to the intended subject matter of this podcast. In 1901, The first successful open-heart cardiac massage occurred in Norway by Christian Iggelsrud, a Norwegian physician who lived from 1867 to 1940. There is little written about him in the English literature, but what I found out was this. During an operation for a cancer of the uterus, the patient went into cardiopulmonary arrest near the end of the procedure. Interestingly, the doctors tried artificial respiration and electrical stimulation of the phrenic nerve. Quick background. The phrenic nerve, so named from the Greek word phren, meaning diaphragm, are a pair of nerves that are the only source of motor innervation to the diaphragm. That's the big muscle that separates the thorax and abdomen and is the primary muscle of breathing. So, kind of important. Which is why the doctors were attempting to stimulate it to get the patient to breathe on her own again. However, this was unsuccessful, so Igglesrud cut into the chest between the third and fourth ribs and opened the sac around the heart. However, this was unsuccessful, so Iglesrud cut into the chest between the third and fourth ribs and opened the sac around the heart. He compressed the heart with his hand for one minute, the heartbeat returned, and the patient recovered. This little historical event may have remained unknown to the world had it not been for a visiting physician from Philadelphia named Keene. He happened to be assisting Iglesrud when this event occurred and published an account in the Philadelphia Therapeutic Gazette in 1904. Now, however, despite these early successes, opening the chest to massage the heart to resuscitate patients was uncommon, and there was much debate over the validity of internal cardiac massage. And many surgeons were reluctant to attempt this, even though it was done only in the most dire of circumstances. In 1924, Walter Lee and T. McKean Downs published an article in the Annals of Surgery entitled, Resuscitation by Direct Massage of the Heart in Cardiac Arrest. In it, they not only described a successful case involving a patient under ether narcosis, but also review the literature finding 101 cases, including their own, with a 25% success rate. Interestingly, they relay that since most cases occur during surgery where the abdomen may already be opened, the best approach is from the abdomen through the diaphragm rather than the previously described thoracic route, meaning through the chest. However, this is obviously pretty dependent on the scenario. The key is that they argue that the rhythmic squeezing of the heart is the act that sort of jumpstarts contraction rather than mechanically doing the pumping for the heart which leads to our next breakthrough. In the 1930s, electric power companies began to fund research for scene-of-accident resuscitations. With the desire of the public to have their homes and offices rewired for the marvel of electric lighting and the subsequent rush to string more wire, many utility linemen were getting electrocuted. Somebody noticed that this often involved small jolts of electricity followed by sudden death from ventricular fibrillation. Again, new side note. Ventricular fibrillation is when the heart's ventricles, which pump blood to the lungs and body, show irregular and unsynchronized contractions of the muscle fibers. The name comes from the Latin fibra, meaning fibers. The appearance of the heart during this condition is often described as a bag of worms. No one understood the connection between electricity and fibrillation, so the utility company sponsored research to find out why. Enter our next subject of interest, a man sometimes referred to as the father of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, William B. Cohenhoven. Nicknamed Wild Bill by his colleagues and students, Cohenhoven was trained as an electrical and mechanical engineer, and by 1914 was appointed as an instructor in electrical engineering at Johns Hopkins University. In 1925, the utility company Consolidated Edison of New York, referred to as Con Ed, selected Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health to study the effects of electricity on the human body, and Cohenhoven was invited to be part of the research team. By 1933, they had demonstrated that by applying a second surge of electricity to a dog's fibrillating heart, a normal rhythm could be reestablished. This was a landmark discovery, something we now call defibrillation. The team applied this defibrillation to open chest cardiac resuscitation techniques, and in 1947, a cardiac surgeon in Cleveland named Claude Beck became the first person to successfully use an electric defibrillator on a human heart. While operating on a 14-year-old boy, known only as RH, with a pectus excavatum, which is a deformity causing the chest to appear caved in, the boy went into ventricular fibrillation near the end of the procedure. After massaging the heart by hand for 45 minutes, Beck used a defibrillator which he himself had designed. After applying the paddles of the device directly to the boy's chest, he activated the machine and successfully brought the heart out of fibrillation. The boy made a full recovery. A quick side note, Beck is also known for Beck's triad, which describes the medical signs of acute cardiac tamponade, which is compression of the heart by accumulation of fluid in the pericardial sac. So this is, one, hypotension with a narrowed pulse pressure, two, jugular venous distension, and three, muffled heart sounds. All right, so by 1951, cohen realizing that open chest application of electricity was impractical to help linemen working in the field, began to develop the closed chest defibrillator. Here's how he described it. It would be, quote, portable, effective, simple to operate, and the shock of which could be sent through the chest of an individual whose heart was beating normally without fear of injury, end quote. A few years later, Cohenhoven was joined by G. Guy Knickerbocker, a recent electrical engineering graduate. They had a working prototype, which weighed 200 pounds, And after extensive testing, it was first used on March 17, 1957 by the admitting resident at the Hopkins Hospital on a 42-year-old man. According to Cohenhoven, quote, about 3.30 a.m., his heart went into fibrillation. When the countershock was sent through his chest 72 seconds later, his heart was defibrillated and he lived again. The following year, the cardiovascular surgery resident James R. Jude joined the research team. Around that time, Knickerbocker noticed that simply placing the heavy defibrillator paddles on a dog's chest caused a rise in blood pressure, he, Jude, and Cohenhoven experimented with different hand positioning and rhythms, discovering that a combination of closed chest cardiac massage and artificial respiration could restore 40% of normal blood circulation, in effect resuscitating patients in cardiac arrest. They called this process cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR. Alfred Blalock asked his protege Jew to evaluate the method in 20 patients, which showed an overall survival rate of 70%. The publication of their landmark paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1960, simply titled Closed Chest Cardiac Massage, has been described to, quote, have resulted in saving more lives than any other medical manuscript during the past century, end quote. High praise indeed. In that paper, they stated, anyone, anywhere can now initiate cardiac resuscitative procedures. All that is needed are two hands. Now, two years later, the first pre-hospital closed chest cardiac massage was performed in Baltimore. By the early 1960s, combining with the work by James Elam and Peter Safar, who had been studying the effectiveness of mouth-to-mouth artificial resuscitation, the first guidelines were issued by the American Heart Association's Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Committee. And so, the method we all know as CPR was born. In an interview looking back on these events, cardiothoracic surgeon Jude said the following, quote, The development of CPR was a group effort. You have to understand that before this and defibrillation, the only way to save a patient going into cardiac arrest was for a thoracic surgeon to open the chest and physically squeeze the heart, sometimes repeatedly, so that we used to joke that some patients needed a zipper, anyway. Now, as entertaining as that statement is, things are never quite that simple. In fact, the idea of a closed heart massage dates back at least to the mid-1800s, but fell out of favor only to be rediscovered in a sense by the events we just covered. One of the oldest methods of artificial ventilation was to apply pressure manually to the chest at regular intervals, which is essentially what CPR is now. There's an early description from a paper by Henry Robert Sylvester, an English physician in the British Medical Journal, published in 1858 under the title a new method of resuscitating stillborn children and of restoring persons apparently drowned or dead. This became known as Sylvester's method. Amazingly, the paper is available online and I've read it. Sylvester works out his method by experimenting on dead bodies and measuring the volume change of the lungs with a column of liquid. Here's a description of his method 1. To adjust the patient's position, place the patient on his back with the shoulders raised and supported on a folded article of dress. Two, to maintain a free entrance of air into the windpipe. Draw forward the patient's tongue and keep it projecting beyond the lips. If the lower jaw be gently raised, the teeth may be made to hold the tongue in the required position. Should it be found necessary, the tongue may be so retained by passing a handkerchief under the chin and fastening it over the head. Three, to imitate the movements of deep respiration. Raise the patient's arms upwards by the sides of his head, and then extend them gently and steadily upwards and forwards for a few moments. This action enlarges the capacity of the chest by elevating the ribs and induces inspiration. Next, turn down the patient's arms and press them gently and firmly for a few moments against the sides of the chest. This action diminishes the cavity of the thorax and produces a forcible expiration. Repeat these measures alternately, deliberately, and perseveringly 15 times in a minute. In another part of the paper, Sylvester says that, quote, the arms of the patient are to be used by the operator as handles to open and close the chest, end quote. So basically, the rescuers flap the arms of the poor unconscious victim. Now, out of curiosity, I compared this flap rate, 0.25 flaps per second, and found that it is particularly slow, even compared to some of the slowest flying birds. Also, there is an amazing amount of data published on wingbeat frequency of a huge number of bird species. Side note. Henry Sylvester is also known for a somewhat stranger idea. In The Lancet in 1885, he published an article called On Life Saving from Drowning by Self Inflation. Let me explain. Referencing air sacs in fish and birds used to create buoyancy in water and air, respectively, Sylvester suggested self inflation. By this, he meant to introduce air into the tissues under the skin, a medical condition known as subcutaneous emphysema, by intentionally puncturing the mucous membranes of the mouth at Quote, the angle formed between the gum of the lower jaw and the side of the upper lip or cheek, about opposite the first molar tooth of the lower jaw, End quote. The instrument used to make the puncture, which he suggests could be a penknife or even a sliver of wood, should be passed down a short distance down the neck. I know. Then, the person should close the mouth and nose and make a succession of forcible expiratory efforts when the air contained in the cavity of the mouth will pass freely into the subcutaneous tissue of the neck. The idea was to inflate the soft tissues of the neck and upper chest, essentially creating a life vest made out of your own skin while you're still wearing it. Sylvester even measured the amount of air which the skin of the average neck is capable of holding, which he found was enough to support 10 pounds, which is amply sufficient to support the body immersed in water. He also estimated that this would take less than 3 minutes to inflate yourself and could be maintained by putting a finger in the hole in your mouth or keeping your mouth distended with air. I know it's not really related to the narrative here, but how can I pass up on telling you that story? So, Sylvester's method of resuscitation at the time was only considered as a side product of efforts to improve artificial respiration. There were additional sporadic reports, mostly out of Germany in the late 1800s, and one of the more frequently cited names is the surgeon Franz Koenig, who developed a technique of external cardiac massage which he described in his general surgery textbook published in 1883. He proposed compression of the heart region as an alternative to the ventilatory procedures used in the operating room at the time. Koenig's surgical resident Friedrich Maas published a report of two cases of successful resuscitation from chloroform syncope on March 21st of 1892. This was the first successful performance of external cardiac massage, especially important as chloroform syncope, meaning sudden cardiac arrest during chloroform anesthesia, was generally fatal. Maas used Koenig's technique but greatly increased the rate from 30 to 40 chest compressions per minute, as per Koenig, to 120. And a quick side note, the current recommended rate is between 100 and 120 per minute, which may explain why Moss was successful. There are entire playlists of songs to help people remember the beat, but Staying Alive is frequently recommended, as it has 103 beats per minute, and the name is quite apropos. The close chest technique, which was called the Koenig moss External Cardiac Massage, continued to be used in Germany for a couple of decades following this report, but by 1920, it was no longer in fashion. And as it was published in German and in the, a little bit in the French literature, it did not get taken up in the English-speaking world. Since most cardiac arrests, or at least the witness kind, happened in the operating room, frequently due to anesthesia, surgical options were favored. And so closed chest cardiac massage fell into oblivion until the work of Cohenhoven and colleagues. Well... There's one exception in the English-speaking medical world, which I had referred to in a previous episode on cryo, which is episode number 44 to be exact. He advocated combined use of insufflation of air into the trachea, intravenous epinephrine, abdominal compression, and closed chest cardiac massage with excellent results in 1906. But he received no support, and it is only in hindsight that we recognize his brilliance. Of course, resuscitative thoracotomy, meaning to crack the chest in the case of injury to the heart, lives on in trauma patients, a tradition dating back to the late 1800s, as we covered, with some of those earliest pioneers operating on stab victims, brave enough to go where no man had gone before, the human heart. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we're going to go a bit further back in time to 16th century France, Ambrose Paré, and the beginnings of modern surgery in Renaissance Europe, a topic I've been promising to cover for quite some time. I'm pretty excited about it, and I think it's going to be very interesting. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes, or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening.